morning, everyone. My name is Will Bausch. I'm an elder here at Mercy Hill. Um, if you've known me a while, you know that one thing I like to rant about is how I don't like plays about plays or rock and roll songs that talk about rock and roll. And here I am, an elder, delivering a sermon about being an elder. Um, if I saw this and I was uh, a congregant just coming here, I would be less than excited about this sermon myself. So like Rick Springer prayed, uh, it took me quite a while to get out of the way of this and to just let it be what it is. And once uh, God did that for me, I got very excited about talking about this topic. Um, and uh, I hope you're as excited as I am when you hear what I think God has to say to us this morning. Javon McCormick's website, javonmccormick.com, describes its namesake as an author, speaker, and a self-made millionaire. The website also boasts that Javon McCormick was named best CEO in Austin for his leadership of a company called Scribe Media. A couple of clicks from the homepage will lead you to Mr. McCormick's blog, where you'll find an article providing his insights into the secret of his remarkable success. People like to talk about the fact that I went from the lowest paid person at a software company to president in five years. They love asking about the ultimate benefit, but people rarely talk about how I did it. First and foremost, I was surrounded by people far smarter than myself, very key. Also, I only took 11 days of vacation in five years. In fact, during the birth of my first child, you can even see my laptop in the background of a delivery room photo putting in a full workday, sacrifice. People say, that's over the top. That's ridiculous. I say, there is no success without sacrifice. I spoke at a conference recently. I got to the hotel on Tuesday and stayed until Friday. On every one of those nights, I didn't tuck any of my children into bed. I missed bath times. I didn't get anyone dressed for school. And I didn't have dinner with anyone. That sacrifice. If I died right now, would I have any regrets? That question keeps me aligned to the people in my life and the sacrifices that I make. The answer invariably is no. I wouldn't have any regrets for the sacrifices I've made for my family's success, hands down. My kids go to a private Christian school. I've taken them to Disney World. They've stayed at five-star hotels and they live in a gated community. If I pass away today, my family will be financially secure. So ask yourself the same question. If you passed away right now, would you have any regrets? If society wants to shame your sacrifices for success, remember, whether you're president of the United States, president of a business, or the lowest paid person in a company, there's no success without sacrifice. So one lesson, I'm a high school English teacher, and one lesson I teach my high school students is that repetition is a key to discovering a theme. Can you guess what his theme is? <laughs> With this in mind, you'd have to agree that Mr. McCormick's theme is that there is one essential element to a leader's success, sacrifice. A word that appears seven times in this short blog entry. And this sacrifice was his and his alone to bear. Many Christian leaders may think that they have much in common with the CEO. And many may even share Mr. McCormick's mindset, but won't admit it, that the route to success in Christian ministry 
as in business, involves sacrifice. And they'd be correct, but not in the way they'd think. In our passage today, Exodus chapter 18, we'll read about a leader of God's people, Moses, who might at one point have nodded along with Javon McCormick's philosophy of sacrifice equaling success. And like many leaders in the church today, he was both wrong and right. Sacrifice is required not only to lead God's people, but to serve in Christian community in any capacity. However, this sacrifice doesn't look the way he thought. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 18. We're going to read the entire chapter together. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statute of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it all alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. But any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you 
and they'll bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure and all this people will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Pray with me, will you? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word, which guides us in the way that we are to go, not only in our lives outside of the church community, but also our lives within. Help us to learn what we need to learn from this today. As was already prayed today, help me to get out of the way so you may speak through your holy word to us, from elder to deacon to children's ministry leader to parent to greeter. Lord, all of us in this church community who serve in official and unofficial ways can learn something from your holy word about how you desire God's people to be led. Be with us, Jesus Christ, and help us to accept the grace that you offer and the forgiveness that you offer where we do not conform to the standards of your word in this way. Amen. God's people must function differently than a business and a Christian leader differently than a CEO. In this episode from the history of God's people and the life of Moses, we get an idea just how God wishes us to lead and serve in his church, and it looks very different from Mr. McCormick's philosophy. As we examine the passage, we'll discover the limits of the kind of self-sacrifice McCormick champions when we serve God and his people, the benefits of shared sacrifice, and finally, the power of the one sacrifice that makes work in the kingdom of God possible. So Moses is a leader who is called to shepherd God's people in some ways much like a pastor today. However, Moses is much more than a pastor today as he fulfills a unique role in redemptive history. When we view him from the point of view of today, we understand that he led his people out of bondage, as Christ did and still does, interceded for his people before the Father, as Christ did and still does, and led his people toward the promised land, as Christ did and still does. His work is therefore similar to Christ's. While he's a man, he's not merely any man. Moses is what theologians would call a type of Christ, a figure that points forward to Jesus. As people gathered around Jesus, so they gathered around Moses. And like Jesus, Moses knew what it was to sacrifice for success. This is proper and right for Moses to do. This is the natural result of his unique redemptive role in relationship to God's people, instituted by God when he is first called in Exodus 3.10, by God speaking to him out of the burning bush. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring your people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. By the time of Exodus 18, Moses had sacrificed for God's people again and again, confronting Pharaoh in Exodus 7, which could very likely have resulted in his own death facing the grumbling when leading God's people out of the wilderness in Exodus 15. In Exodus 17:4, Moses even revealed that he fears for his very life from those he leads. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. In that same chapter, Moses had to hold up his hands in the air for an entire battle when the Israelites fought Amalek and his people 
or the Jews would have faced defeat. Along the way, as Israel left Egypt and headed for the promised land, Moses sacrificed his comfort and time in these instances and countless others. So as we can see in verses 12 to 16 of the chapter, when his father-in-law Jethro, Jethro arrived to visit Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses was still sacrificing himself for the sake of God's chosen people. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit all alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses was here fulfilling the role of a prophet in a hands-on and personal way, as God had continually called him to do throughout his adult life. Furthermore, we can presume that he was good at it. From this passage, I can picture like a two-hour-long line for a ride at Disney World, as if Moses were at the end of that line. And who wouldn't want to hear from Moses? The man who performed awe-inspiring miracles that terrified and disturbed the most powerful man on the earth to the point where he eventually set God's people free from slavery. Moses had the direct blessing of God and a direct line to him. He was a man chosen by God for this exact moment, and his advice and judgments were therefore priceless. Imagine for a minute being in Moses' shoes. God spoke out of a bush and called you directly to lead his people. He used your actual body to turn the tides of battle. How could you say no when God's people only wish to live at peace with one another and to learn the law of God? Moses' head-first, go-it-alone response to the needs he perceived around him is better understood from another instances in Moses' life. Back in Exodus chapter 2. Could you turn there, please? The first thing we learn about Moses in his adult life is a moment that Moses, for what he saw as good reasons, acted alone and rashly in service to God. We're going to be at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me? as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Moses' anger at the injustice that his people were subjected to at the hands of a representative of his adopted nation and the enslavers of his own parents was certainly justified. However, Mixed in with that righteous anger was some murderous rage, likely stemming from some guilt he felt for his allegiance with his own people's victimizers, some lack of patience maybe at the workings of God's justice, and some need to act alone and decisively instead of to pray or seek counsel. And the result was murder, a violation of God's law. 
While Moses did not commit a murder at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai in chapter 18, he did act in a similarly rash and short-sighted way, as his father-in-law observes in chapter 18, verses 17 and 19. Doing a lot of flipping today, so flip back there. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring your cases to God. Moses' father-in-law observes from his own life experience that Moses has fallen into the CEO trap. There's a reason many leaders, Christian or otherwise, sacrifice themselves for their goals. It usually seems to work. People have traits that people follow tend to lead. And as they lead, they're given still more responsibility. Unfortunately, just because a company or a church appears to grow and more seem to follow doesn't mean it's sustainable either for the organization or the leader. The church needs Jethro's. Where are the Jethro's? The older men who see what those in the most active years of ministry don't see. As an elder in this church, I'm thankful for the Jethro's, men like Rick Springer. He sees things that the five of us somewhat younger men just don't or can't see. And he's been where we are before. The Holy Spirit uses older men and women in the church in a unique way. And I'm not unaware that at times I'm not as humble as Moses was in my responses to their observations. But often the Holy Spirit is speaking through them. And their works are confirmed by scripture and reality. Jethro's life experience suggests that perhaps he's made the CEO mistake himself, or has at least experienced the temptation. Look at verses 15 to 22 of chapter 2. Sorry, Exodus 2, 15 to 22. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, which is another name for Jethro, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. You see here that Jethro has managed a large flock. He runs a business and likely makes decisions affecting the financial well-being of many. It's likely that Jethro is a natural leader as well, but is wiser from experience. Not only that, but Jethro knows Moses' character. Every time, I was talking to Scott about that, every time I, I, I prepare one of these messages, I learn something new that blows my mind. And some of you probably already knew this, but I didn't realize it. Acts 7.30 tells us that Moses lived with Jethro for 40 years. I always pictured that amount of times, like five years or something, and then he goes back. No, it's 40 years. And Moses was about 40 when he went to live with Jethro, which makes him 80 years old during chapter 18 of Exodus, at least 80 years old. As Mo Moses was his son-in-law, and he was his de facto employee, 
Jethro knows Moses' strengths and weaknesses, probably intimately. What he observes at Sinai is likely not a surprise to him. He's not afraid to speak into what is not his business. And he risks being awkward, the biggest sin of all today, right? As we see in verses 19 to 23. Now obey my voice. How'd you like hearing that from your father-in-law? I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for um, able men from among the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bride, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they'll bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you'll be able to endure, and all this people also will get to their place in peace. Jethro's model of shared sacrifice that he relays here is one of the origins in the Old Testament of the model for eldership that we follow here at Mercy Hill and in the PCA. Notice that the type of men Jethro suggests are already leaders. They fear God. They've been tested. Many people are willing to listen to them. With this approach to the needs of God's people, Moses still leads, but in a way that will now last. He's not called to sacrifice himself totally, but to rather share the burden. Jethro recognizes that Moses must endure, not flame out. Sacrificing yourself to lead seems unselfish, but actually it's incredibly selfish. When you eventually collapse under the pressure, everything on your shoulders tends to collapse along with you. Moses must endure because God's people must endure. Another benefit for the biblical model of shared sacrifice that begins here is that it brings order. So chapter 18, verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses and any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Now, there's a method for organizing God's people here. They're divided into groups mathematically. And their responsibilities are clear. While Moses' unique gift and role and, as redeemer and prophet is preserved and is used effectively. Through his interactions with Jethro, Moses is also humbled. First, he must listen to his father-in-law. We all know how difficult it is to take direction from an older man or woman, especially if that person is related to us and seems to be telling the truth about our weaknesses that we hide even from ourselves. It's also difficult for a leader to share power as their sense of ownership and perhaps their pride makes them distrust the efforts of others when they perhaps think they could do it better. This is another reason why the advice of Javon McCormick's CEO types tends to win out over the Jethro's. It's what those with passions, goals, and leadership abilities want to hear, that you sacrifice yourself. But even this shared sacrifice that 
that Jethro offers to Moses, though better than self-sacrifice, is still not sufficient to care for God's people in and of itself. As mentioned in Exodus 18, and woven throughout the story of God's people as told in the entire book of Exodus, the story of another's sacrificial work that makes serving in any way of the kingdom of God different in the, than in the business world is related here. This foundational sacrifice is the reason that Jethro comes to Sinai in the first place. Go all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Notice, all that God has done, not all that Moses has done. Even though Moses is the leader, he receives the sacrificial effort of God along with his people that he leads. He doesn't get the credit for Israel's release from Egypt. In a detail that's easy to miss, the redemptive work of God is represented even in the names of Moses' sons. Look at verses 2 through 4. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he'd sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Gershom, Moses' first son, means sojourner, someone traveling through. Eliezer means God is my help. Moses became a sojourner in chapter 2 because of his own rash actions, killing the Egyptian at the time he met, and at the time he met Zipporah and came to live with Jethro, this event had just occurred. God helped him then for 40 years when he was dependent and powerless. Now that he and his people are also strangers in a strange land, sojourners, God is and has been their help from the Passover to the Red Sea to the manna to the water from the rock. Now let's turn to the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 6. So I'll take you a second to get there. As the last moments of Stephen's life in Acts can help us to understand the actions of God in the life of his people from creation through the life of Moses. From Exodus 6 and 7, we can learn that Moses' life was about more than Moses or any specific leader. And it was rather about God's own self-sacrificial work on behalf of his people through a more perfect Moses. So in Acts 6, verses 12 to 15, Stephen is accused of denying God's redemptive actions through Moses, through his own following of the teachings of Jesus. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So skipping ahead to Acts chapter 7, verse 18, we jump into the middle of Stephen's reply to the accusations of the elders and scribes. It's a rather long passage, but I think it helps us to understand the relevance of the events of Moses' life to the church today. So Acts 7, verse 18. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, 
the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving him salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. When, he was four, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I'll send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. All the time that Moses was to redeem his people, there was a need for a greater redeemer, a greater sacrifice. And at the end of this passage, Stephen tells us that Moses pointed ahead to this redeemer, a prophet like himself, but able to save to the uttermost. And at the end of Stephen's last sermon, before he's brutally murdered, he points to the greater Moses the holy sufficient sacrifice upon which the whole church from Adam to today depends. Jesus, the righteous one, as Stephen calls him. Look at verse 51 of Acts 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen here puts Jesus' life in the context of the lives of the Jews' revered patriarchs like Moses. And ironically, they confirm the truth of Stephen's analysis of biblical history by killing him immediately after he says this. From the movement away from his own self-sacrifice to a humble shared sacrifice through the selection of what we might call the first elders, analogous to elders in the church today, we can see an acknowledgement that the only total sacrifice that will guide and sustain God's people is God's own sacrifice on their behalf, in Egypt and in the wilderness and culminating on the cross. Pastors, 
elders, deacons, children's ministry workers, worship leaders, parents instructing their children, any who desire to serve God's people in any way may experience the same temptation as Moses. To act as if sacrifice of ourselves is required for the work of the church to get done. Jethro's in the church need to watch for this impulse in Christians around them and warn them from this path. Every one of us must recount the things God has done, even as we acknowledge that he uses individuals to do these things. We need to have a vision of God that includes his omnipotence, meaning he is all-powerful, and his omnipresence, meaning that he's everywhere, to see his working in our church community and our lives as Christians properly in relationship to our individual and group efforts. The realization of God's perfect shepherding of his church should lead to a sense of awe at God's love for his people and to humility that leads to a loose hold on the reins of power. We all need to avail ourselves of the sacrifice of Christ when we serve in any way in a Christian community, as we're fully dependent on God's provision to do anything and fully dependent on Christ's forgiveness when we inevitably disappoint ourselves and others. As we conclude, I'd like to share an update on our self-sacrificing CEO, Javon McCormick. Javon McCormick, CEO of the beleaguered book writing and publishing startup Scribe Media, LLC, said in a June 2nd, 2023 LinkedIn post that he has resigned. The announcement came more than a week after the company informed the Texas Workforce Commission that it essentially shut down and was laying off about 90 employees, the vast majority of its team. That generated widespread outcry from former employees who say they're still owed money and were dumped without any continuing benefits such as health insurance. Javon McCormick's reliance on his own sacrifice could not save his company from himself. I'm not sure whether his family is still as financially secure as he boasted about in his blog, but his employees sure aren't. How many pastors and elders have made the same CEO mistake of self-sacrifice, the mistake that Moses made at Sinai? How many churches have ended up in ruin, along with the lives or faith of the pastor, the elders, and the greetings team, due to the well-meaning but prideful go-it-alone, buck-stops-here mentality of those doing the good work God has called them to. Too many, I fear. Obedience to God requires that we depend on one another in many ways that will humble us. God help us if the elders of this church make it about themselves and carry a burden alone rather than rely on the one for whom the church exists to carry the burden for his own people. As an English teacher, I have many lines of poetry committed to memory just through repetition. Here's a couple that I think are good to keep in mind as we serve in Christ Church. The first is from a poem called Elegy, written in a country churchyard by, by Thomas Gray. And the line is, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. Another one is from a poem called To a Mouse Upon Turning Her Nest Up with a Plow by Robert Burns. The best laid plans of mice and men gang after glay and leave us naught but grief and pain for promised joy. I always have to translate for this, this for students because he's Scottish. Okay, so it's Scottish dialect. The best laid plans of mice and men often go wrong 
and lead us not, leave us nothing but grief and pain for the joy that we were promised. These two verses of poetry help point out the folly of relying only on our own sacrifices in Christian work, or even the bet, only on the better model of shared sacrifice. Everything ends. People and ministries die. Plans fail for mice and for men and for Christian leaders. However, our God, from Eden to Egypt, from Jerusalem to New Jersey, has defeated death in the finished sacrifice of his son Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And as we do this good work of Christian service together, no further sacrifice is necessary, as Christ's perfect sacrifice is sufficient for all our needs. And God's perfect plans, rather than ours, will never leave us grief and pain, but rather the promised joy of an eternity with him to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do the work of ministry, that you shepherd and guide your church as us men who presume to lead. Lord, only lead at your permission and only do your will. Lord, as we seek to do this will, help us to be humble. The elders of this church, the pastor, the deacons of this church, the leaders of ministries, the parents the people who do any kind of work with other Christians. Help us to be humble, for to do this work, we need to share the burden. And we also need to rely on the one who carried our burdens and continues to carry our, our burdens on his shoulders, your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray if anyone in leadership or who is attempting to lead in a Christian way is leading without Jesus, that they would come to know your son, Jesus. First, the church does not need workers. The church needs Christians. Help those in leadership to turn frequently to the cross, to be on our knees humbly, asking forgiveness for our sins, receiving grace and mercy so that we may turn outward and serve. And all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.